So welcome to my first episode. This is damn exciting, and I really appreciate you checking it out. You know, I've been thinking about doing a podcast for some time now. Every time I listened to other shows, I felt jealousy creeping in, and I kept thinking, you know, I can do that. People always told me I had the voice for it, so I did it. It just took me a while to figure that out. What didn't take long was deciding who my first guest would be. I've known her nearly 30 years. It's been my privilege to call her a friend, and I'm enormously proud of her accomplishments. Blessed with an innate sense of humor and infectious personality, she's a journalist and recently published author of the acclaimed book, Black Widow. I think you'll find her life and career journey rather inspiring. She's Leslie Gray Streeter, and this is Back by Popular Demand. Leslie. Dude. It's my first episode. <laughs> this is awesome. I'm excited to be here. And I'm not going to say just because you can't get anybody else. I'm going to assume it's a that, that it's some sort of honor. So there you go. It's definitely an honor and certainly intentional to have you on. Um, I'm pretty excited too, although I really have no idea what I'm doing. I'm kind of making this up as I go. So. Whoever does. It's fine. Um, no, it's great. And I'm so excited to have you on. But here's why you make me smile, Leslie. Uh, about an hour ago, you texted me asking me if it was okay if you can drink alcohol during this podcast. And that made me laugh. Of course you can drink. Uh, tell me, what are you drinking? I am drinking a Manhattan that has too much vermouth in it. And I wish I was downstairs that I could like dump a little more bourbon in it. But um, it was made quickly. Well, I'd be a terrible podcast host if I let you drink alone. So I'm going to pour myself a Blanton's. So listen, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, when did we first meet? I'm, I, I thought it was 1990, but you're thinking it was 89? It was one of... It may have been 90. We lit, we were at University of Maryland. Yep. I was at Centerville, which was like the girls' dorm at the time, the big like subwalk uh, C, as they called it. Yep. And you, I think, were in Denton or Cambridge. Well, I was actually in two dorms. They put me in Ellicott Hall first, and that was an all male dorm. And Leslie, that's just way too many dudes for me. So I asked to move to Cumberland. Cumberland, there you go. And so, yeah, it was, you were friends with a friend of my best friend, Charlene, Charlene and I were J school right. and roommates and you were friends. See, I remember, I don't have any math in my head, but I think you were friends with her friend, Lori. Okay. Am I right? It might've been her. It might've been my friend, Kim. And now that you say it, you're right. Our friendship circles actually did overlap from time to time. And now that I think about it, I remember seeing you out and about and at, at certain parties and at the movie theater and things like that. But whenever I think of you, I think about you at the Diamondback. And it's mainly because I just recall seeing your byline all the time because you seem like you wrote a ton of articles, certainly a lot more than I did. And I remember bumping into you at the newsroom constantly. And that's what I remember about Leslie. But also, were you involved in the film committee at the student union? I was, but I can't recall. Were you part of that? I was and I wasn't. Eventually, I wrote a column at the student union at the stamp um, at the, the Hoff, which was the um, movie theater. Yeah, movie I wrote theater. a column called At the Hoff. So I was there. It was so funny. Um, I It was just like a dumb throwaway thing. That was like supposed to be. Here's what's happening at the Hoff, and yep. I was like, "Can I make this funny?" And they go, "Can you?" I was like, "Sure." So I would riff on the movies. I was like, "Ah, it's Charlie Sheen movie. Who cares?" You know, whatever. And I would riff on it, and it became like a thing, which was really dumb. Which I realized was my my first um, foray into making something funny out of something dumb. And uh, yeah, so I was at the student union a lot, and I worked I there. Actually. Yep. I worked there at the desk. 
for a semester um, at the information desk. But yeah, I just remember you and we would like, go, we went to the movies. Like we would like go to the movies and talk about movies and it was mostly about movies. No, I totally remember that. I forgot about that piece that you wrote. That's right. You did the at the Hoff thing. Cause I was involved at the film committee at the yeah. student union yeah. and we did all those free promo screenings that, you know, Whatever movie that movie that came along, if it was Drop Dead Fred or Father of the Bride, we did those I, movies. But, I, so I saw you there at all that too. I That's was so at funny. all of them. I was everywhere. Okay, and then obviously we we knew each other mostly. I think at the at the newspaper eventually yeah. when we yeah. both started writing. I started writing there in sophomore year, and I kind of feel like you did the same. I I started at the end of freshman year. Okay, like when I asked about, when they were like, "We got this stupid movie thing." I was like, "I'll do it." And the good thing was that I wound up actually becoming friends with the guy who was the director of it. The, the manager's name was Jack. He was yeah, like, Jack Styles. Yeah, older. Why do I remember his last name? But I do. Oh yep. my god, he was older and grizzled and amazing. And he was the kind of guy that would look at what do you want, kid? But he was like, you know, with heart of gold. Yep. Um, and he, after a while, he liked so much what I did. He would play movies on my birthday. Um, that, did, like, I did not know that. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. He did Hot Shots, the Charlie Sheen uh, spoof. He did My Own Private Idaho. That was my favorite. That yep. And I cried all the way through it. And he was like, is it okay? Like, no, it was supposed to Keanu. So beautiful. Yeah, so it was beautiful. So we were both College of Journalism dorks writing for the Diamondback. I think my first uh, review, movie review, was the um, forgettable Gene Wilder comedy called Funny About Love. I remember the arts editor told me to go review it. So I blew off class took the shuttle bus to the AMC Greenbelt and banged out that review that night. I was so excited. But Leslie, what was your first uh, article for the Diamondback? I think it was one of the at the Hoff things. Like I said, it really was just supposed to be like a listing. And they were like, can you make something out of this? And what I did was I would go through and usually there was like three or four movies or things happening. And I would riff on the two that I knew about and then, like, kind of fill space with the other two. Yeah, like, yep. what it was. As yep. long as the first, I learned as long as the first two were funny, the rest of it was okay. And it was a student paper. It's not like they were, like, you know, teaming with people who were trying. Sure. So they sure. were like, take a shot. I'm like, okay, great. So I think that was the first thing. I remember writing a lot of, like, I wrote music reviews about anything they got. If they would send a, um, They'd send the the CDs. They go, we've never heard of this person. I go, great. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Um, I did anything because I, I was like, I filled space. Also, it was just so much fun because nobody was stopping you. No, it was great. I, it was a student run newspaper, so it was. I felt like there was a lot of like freedom in the room where you could really do what you want. I felt the same thing. Like I, I just called him one day and said, "Hey, I want to write movie reviews." I had read a review for something that I. Mm-hmm. I felt like was okay. And I was like, you know what? I could do that. I, I, yeah. Maybe I could do that even better. And I don't know if I was any better, but I thought I was. So I think that's where you and I, I mean, I know, remember seeing you in the newsroom all the time because I know that we were, both, you know, we were both overlapping. So talk to me a little bit about journalism. I want to, you know, did you know, like when you got to Maryland, did you know that this is what you wanted to do, that you wanted to be a writer? When did that sit in? I knew this what I would do since I was 14. Um, I just knew. And I actually... Maryland used to have a scholarship in conjunction with the Baltimore Sun where every year was minority scholarship. Do you remember Ed Hurd? He was one of the, I do. yeah, I do. Yep. Ed won the year um, that I should have won and I never forgave him. But anyway, um, they did the scholarship that was minority scholarship and they usually went boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl. 
it was four years at Maryland, automatically automatic um, admission into the journalism school, free ride, an internship at the Sun, and then a job when he graduated. Wow. It was, and I remember the year that I was a freshman, there was a girl named Tracy, can't remember her last name, who won. And my dad, I can see it in my in my um, head. He cut the story out and crossed out her name and wrote my name in That's and great. put it in my mirror and said, that could be you. And I got, I got as far as being a finalist. I was crushed, but I got in the J, the J school right off anyway. And I, that's all I ever wanted to do. All I ever wanted to do. And I pretty quickly figured out it was going to be features and entertainment. I, I knew that that's other people would tell you. I mean, it's funny listening now because now all anyone wants to do is write about lifestyles and stuff. But back in the day, particularly growing up in the DC area, that was like fluffy to people. Like, Oh, don't you want to do news? Don't you want to do a political town? Yep. Yeah. And I, and I did not. And I had to explain to people, no, no, I want to do features. Give me all your features, feed the features into my veins. Um, so I, I was pretty specific about it and I was lucky enough to be able to do it for most of my life. So, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, it, it shows obviously, given where you where you've netted out, which we're going to get into in this episode. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. But um, all right, so after Maryland, I know you worked at, in York, PA, for a while. Um, yeah. I don't think you were there that long, but your the majority of your career has been in Florida, right? Yeah. Well, it was I was in Florida twice. I was at a black paper called the Miami Times that was a weekly. Okay. Um, when I graduated. Because we did the slacker thing where we didn't have jobs. My sister and I are twins. And she went to St. Mary's in Southern Maryland. And we are like, we'll just spend our vacation, our uh, graduation money, and we'll buy train tickets and we'll go to Florida. My parents had moved the year before. And my dad claimed that he had no idea we meant it. And my mother's like, I think, because they flew up to come to our graduations. And they went back. And we go, we'll see you in a week. And my dad goes, no, they're not. My mother goes, they literally have no jobs. So we got on a train. Very 90s. I remember standing at the Miami train station listening on my Walkman to exposés. I'll never get over you. Never get over you getting over me going, ah, I'm in Florida. And we stayed at the, sat at the pool for a week. And my father came out at the end of the week and said, enjoy your, I hope you enjoyed your vacation. Here are the one ants. Um, so we got jobs first at a, I worked at a mall. Both worked at a mall. I sold cheap clothes. My sister sold Payless shoes. And then a month later, I got a weekly newspaper job. Was there for a year and a half. Okay. It was time to leave um, and be on my own. So I had interviewed someone. Everything leads back to Maryland, by the way. That I had gone to a job fair with NABJ, the National Association of Black Journalists um, chapter at Maryland at um, Temple when I was a senior and didn't get anything immediately, but I met an editor in York. So literally the day I got off the train, when I graduated, she called and I was like, I literally am tired. I can't do this. So she was call me if you ever want a job. And when I was sick of being in Florida, I called her in 1994 and she goes, we actually have an opening. So I went and was there from 94 to 2002 okay. and then met the people in, from Florida at the Plaza Hotel in New York at a features conference. I'd won an award and the editor and I were sitting next to each other while Martha Stewart was droning on about something at the, as the keynoter. And we thought she was ridiculous. So we kept laughing and moving our chairs closer to each other. 
And she hands me her card and says, you're funny. Call me. Uh, let's let's talk about your time at the Palm Beach Post, because I know that's where you were 17, 18 years, yeah. big chunk of your career. You were an entertainment columnist, um, probably among other titles over that many years. <laughs> but like, talk to me about what an entertainment columnist is. Like, I know in my head what that is. Um, I'm very jealous of it, by the way, because it sounds awful. <laughs> but like, tell me about like the day in the life of what Leslie was like back then. Well, it all depends. When I first got there, I was writing. This is back when... Our feature section was ridiculous. Our feature section in the early 2000s was like what they are on TV. It really was. Where it was had a, we had our own section of the newsroom. We had a thousand editors. There were six different critics, seven different critics. There was a two movie critics, including myself, a classical music and dance critic, a pop music critic, an art critic, um, a classical dance. There was like a books critic, an editor. There were like at least six of us running around acting stupid TV critics. So there were seven and um, we had our own copy desk and we spent ridiculous money. I actually called you. Um, I went, they sent me to New York um, to it was either the time I was on that. I was an extra on law and order or the time that they sent me to New York to just do all the Christmas stuff. Yep. And I was like, what do you know? We never got together, but I was like, there's someone else is paying me to be in New York. You're like, okay, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know. It's really great. Um, so there was a lot of money, um, in the beginning. And so I got to like travel. I went to, they sent me to LA. I was actually in LA the day that Christopher Reeve died. Wow. We were staying at the Hollywood Roosevelt, which now is swanky swanky, but then was under renovation. So you get pretty cheap. And they put us up there for like a week. We had the Chateau one night, which was great. Very nice. Um, but mostly, mostly we were there. And he, we checked in and found out that he died. And they said, wander across the street to the star, see what's going on, and go back tomorrow. So, And this is something only people our age will get. And also it's about what actual – it's not just journalism. I'm going to sound crusty for a minute. It's about not taking for granted that people are just going to give you a story and not taking for granted that you know everything. So we go across the street, myself and the photographer who was in her 20s. I was in my early 30s. And we see the star, Christopher Reeve star. And people overnight have put Novana candles and Superman balloons and all kinds of notes and stuff. And it's really sacred and beautiful and crazy and weird. And so we're talking, walking around talking to people. And I see this guy at the corner of my eye kind of hanging back. But he looks really serious and he looked really familiar. And I said to the photographer, follow my lead. So I walk around a star and I go, I'm so sorry to bother you. I know that you're obviously this means a lot to you. And he said, yes. And I said, um, are you an actor? And he said, yes, I am. And I said, um, is your name Mark? And he said, yeah. And I said, are you Jimmy Olsen? Wow. Um, Mark McClure says, yes, I am. And I went, holy. So and Mark McClure, if, if memory serves, sorry to interrupt you. Wasn't he in Back to the Future? Yes, he was. He was Marty McFly's brother. He was his big brother, Dave, right? Yes. So I went, oh. So I grabbed the photographer and I start interviewing him. She's taking pictures, taking pictures, taking video. And he was amazing. And he talked about how he and Chris had stayed in touch. And he had just, he lives outside at the time, at least, lived outside, uh, but had driven in to LA to do some TV. Cause obviously they wanted to talk to him at some of the TV affiliates. And he wanted to stop by and pay his respects and he didn't tell anyone he was coming. He just wanted to be there. 
And so we're talking, we're talking, we're talking. And I notice all of these young, pretty girls who are the stand-up TV video people. And they don't know me because I'm not local. They don't recognize me. But they recognize that me and a photographer are spending 10 minutes talking to this one guy. Yep. And they're not at all curious. Because I know when I was like doing anything, particularly like when I was covering um, fires or whatever in New York, and I would see someone talking to someone, I would go, is that the owner? Is that the victim? Is that the whatever? Or getting curious about who that is. Exactly. Yeah. And I would ask, who's that person? Because you weren't, I'm good. I couldn't, you couldn't walk off and have your editor go, did you see that person? And why did you miss that person? So I stood there and interviewed the suit for 10 minutes. I said, thank you very much, Mr. McClure, Mr. McClure. Sorry for your loss. He looks around for a couple seconds. No one else approaches him. He goes, eh, and he leaves. And I thought. That was all you. That was all me. And they didn't know. And my editor goes, only you would go to LA and bump into Jimmy Olsen. I was like, yeah. So, all right. I want to get serious just for a minute because you know this is a podcast that talks about the business side yeah. of things, and so you were you were there for quite a long time. You've mm-hmm. obviously witnessed the, you know, what I would call the slow death of print media <laughs> and certainly the rise of digital. Right? Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about what that was like because I mean you're you're at the same age as me where we both appreciated print for what it was for many yeah. many years. Um, I placed a lot of business in print, and I'm a big yeah. fan of it. Um, I still buy books, and I like to read hard physical things. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, talk to me a little bit about what that was like. And I know that you're no longer there, but I would love to hear your thoughts on how that journey went. You know what it was? It was, I think like most deaths, it's easier to see from the outside. Yeah. You know, or even within an organization, it was easier to see for the newer people who had been hired specifically to do digital or who were younger and sort of in that tradition. For those of us who, I mean, you and I kind of straddle it. I mean, the people that are 10 years older than us really were not only so much steep in the digital tradition and the print tradition, that it was very difficult for many of them yep. to the transition. And there's still sometimes in my old job and in my new job where I have to go to the 25 year olds, talk to me like I'm your grandma. I don't know what this does. Can you help me? <laughs> and that takes a lot for you to admit that to somebody. It does, you know? But I have to because I want to do my job. I had a friend who's 10 years younger than me, who for a while was working at the Fort Lauderdale, now Florida, South Florida Sun Sentinel in that role in the early 2000s, basically trying to prepare middle-aged journalists for the future. Yep. And most people dove in because they understood that's where their job was going. And she had a couple people who didn't, who wouldn't do it, wouldn't do it, dug their heels in. And I think it was, it was new and they were afraid maybe they weren't going to get it. So they rejected it as stupid before they could do it. And those people don't have jobs anymore. I mean, you you just can't do it. But I think that the biggest problem, and I mean, no no disrespect to newspapers and I love them is that as ad revenue began to go down in print, no one was sure how to replace the ad dollars with in-kind ad dollars. Yep. So, I mean, in South Florida, when I moved to Palm Beach in 2002, we had so much real estate listings, so many real estate listings and all the things that come with it, furniture and whatever, that literally the paper was that thick. I mean, it was so you can't see listeners, but it was really thick. We had like two different home sections and it was just crazy. 
And you would begin to see it getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And when the real estate bubble burst in 2008, it just went down. There was no one was advertising for anything yep. at all, home-related. And then as that goes, all the other things that surround the home buying goes too. So we didn't realize, I think, immediately how that was going to affect us because that was like a weird business thing that had nothing to do with our art because it was art, you know. And then when it began to go down, we hired some young people who had disdain for print who relished in telling the old people what to do. Yeah. And they didn't last very long either um, because they didn't love it. And I think the people that were most successful, the papers that have been most successful are papers like the Washington post that reinvented themselves. They did a brilliant job at that. A brilliant job. They, they said, here's what we are. We are a print paper and a digital outlet. And they have both things and they have actively staffed and are always hiring and are always improving not just the digital because so many people abandoned the print product and ran towards the digital and so many so a couple people clung to print and didn't understand digital or didn't or was um were hesitant to embrace what it really meant because it was threatening i also have the benefit of having a lot of experience that even there were that there were people who basically straight up were like i'm replacing them like you can't you can't i mean they, they took some of my thunder and you had to kind of ride out the thunder <laughs> until someone figured out that it was not comparable. But it was a lot of ego. Um, to me, so much is lost in institutional memory when you've got like buyouts and like everybody over 50 leaves, you know, yep. or, or 60. And then the young people who aren't, unless you're a true believer, you're not sticking around journalism at this point. Um, so when I know kids, I will do anything to support these kids coming up who go, I love this. I want to do it. I'll live with my mom. I don't care. I'll live with three people. I don't care. I want to do this because something's got to get told and it's all going to be digital probably at some point. But the fact that people understand that it's all a continuum yep, and that you still have to have things like facts, yep. you still have to have things like sources and cooperation and you know it's not just your opinion those are tenants that are going to have to always be there regardless of you know what, what, what stage of their career that they're in exactly yeah. so it's, it's exciting to see that there's people like i said who are true believers who who are out there doing it yeah well i mean i i can i i feel for you in that regard because i'm i've been doing some guest lecturing this past year um at a couple universities and it's that same thing where the younger people that want to start off a career in either media or marketing particularly entertainment, you know, they ask me all the questions, the good and the bad, like, what do you think about agencies? What do you think about the client side? And, you know, you, you want to, you want them to feel good about the choice that they're making. And, and it is a good choice, but at the same time, there are some, some concerns and some serious headwinds, particularly right now in what's been a very difficult year for a lot of people. And you don't want to sugarcoat it necessarily either. So no. you need to have that balance. I just spoke to a journalism class at Morgan state in Baltimore. I did a couple of classes online. Um, speaking to the um, the professor who's amazing, who I did not realize apparently Milton Kent apparently is very well known here. He's a, he's been on the PBS, the NPR station and he's very well known. He's really great. And it was not surprising. And I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but I will just say that some of the more interesting nuanced questions were from the older students. <laughs> yep. Go figure. But nothing against the, the younger students. It's just, they just haven't gotten there yet. They haven't exactly. gotten to, um, 
taking appraisal of an entire life and say, and pulling themselves out of it and not just asking the, so what would you do if you were a, what, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Of so course. I think age makes you better at everything. Okay. Leslie's life and her career are about to take a pretty serious turn. And I want to get into that, but let's take a quick break first. This episode of Back by Popular Demand is sponsored by The Waffle Company, the first ever get and give pet bed company in the world, which means for every bed sold, they donate a bed to a shelter dog in need. How amazing is that? Those who know me will tell you how much I value animal rescue, and I adore my two boxer rescues, Sammy and Gabby. And believe me when I say that they love their waffle bed. My dog dad stock went up big time when their waffle arrived. Not a day goes by when one of them isn't sprawled across their waffle, gnawing away on one of their chew toys or enjoying one of the many naps they take every day. Waffle beds are made with organic cotton canvas and filled with pure K-pop cotton, which is lightweight, hypoallergenic, and eco-friendly. The beds come with two washable exterior layers that are very easy to reassemble once clean. I gotta say, every time I wash my waffle, I kind of want to lay down on it. Look, I love my dogs. You love your dogs. And we'll pretty much do anything in the world for them. So get them a waffle. By doing so, you're ensuring a shelter dog can also sleep better at night. I can't think of anything better. Order them at waffleco.com. It's spelled just like the breakfast waffle, but with an O. Again, that's waffleco.com. The Waffle Company is based in Columbus, Ohio, and all of its products are made with great care right here in the USA. Okay, let's get back to the pod. Okay, we're back, and I want to talk about Leslie's book, Black Widow. A sad, funny journey through grief for people who normally avoid books with words like journey in the title. It was released last March, and the paperback version comes out next month. Uh, Before I turn it over to Leslie, I do want to read a quick quote, which I really think captures the essence of this book and Leslie's story. I'm a Black Baptist woman planning a Jewish funeral for her white husband, who is supposed to be turning 45 next month. We are in the middle of finalizing the adoption of the aforementioned sleeping baby, who's been with us since six months old, but is still not legally ours. I'm supposed to be focusing on that, not standing here in this stupid cemetery, deciding whether Scott's body will spend eternity in a fancy wall or a hole in the ground in the Jewish section. Leslie, you found the love of your life. You married him. You guys decided to adopt Brooks, who we're going to talk about in a minute. And then Scott unexpectedly died. And uh, most people in that situation would never be able to really make sense of that and move on from that. Yet you, uh, after you're grieving, decided to write a book, a great book that's been critically acclaimed and is a big reason why I wanted you on today so everybody else can hear your story. It's heartbreaking, yet it's also enormously inspiring. So talk to me. Tell me what led to the decision of finally putting uh, pen to paper. Well, I think, well, you know me, so you know that I I talk a lot and um, I kind of express myself as the words are coming out. And sometimes I don't know where they're going. They just do. And that's always kind of how I've um, not just worked and thought, but how I process things. It's like, I believe in therapy. I also believe in that kind of therapy. That's sort of a self-therapy that to hold on to before you get to your therapist. But um, I've always, I've always been a columnist. So I've always written about myself. And when I was younger, it was, you know, being black Carrie Bradshaw and, you know, drinking and hanging out with my friends and boys. And then when I got older, it was my dad dying. And that was my first serious thing. And then I wrote about 
getting married when I was in my thir- late thirties and about all this other stuff. And when Scott died, I had this moment in my kitchen, um, eight hours maybe after he died. And I was with another friend of mine, Scott Iman, who is, if you don't know who Scott Iman is, you should. He is a very successful Hollywood historian. He has his book on Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise just came out. Um, it's been very well reviewed. Um, he was our books editor at the Palm Beach Post. And he had said to me, you will finish the book that you have to finish. Cause I tried to write things and couldn't finish it. So he was in my kitchen and I said, I think this is my book. It just came out. It just, I said it and I thought, shit, now I have to do this. And um, he said, I think it is. I think it is. But you had tried to write books previously throughout all all that time. I I get bored fifth chapter in and whatever. Yep. And I just needed to both therapeutically and arts wise. And just, I felt that people would recognize, hopefully recognize something in my words because I felt like, I didn't have a book that was exactly what I needed yep. when I was going through it. So I wanted to write that book. And I think for a lot of other people, it's become that, which is so weird because I've had people say I was, I was widowed. I was bereaved. You know, I was looking for something to read that wasn't like self-help or too artsy fartsy or too like woo spiritual. And I saw this sarcastic ass cover and I thought, okay, let's give this a shot. Yeah. Yeah. And how long were you guys married? Five and a half years. Five and a half years. And you were in the process of adopting your your son, Brooks, who, if I may interrupt on this, uh, Brooks is named after Brooks Robinson, the famous Baltimore Oriole, which I think is just fantastic. Yeah, his name is Brooks Robinson Street Reservates. Woo! And there he is. So (laughs) That's fantastic. Yes. That's perfectly timed and and actually kind of serendipitous because I was just about to talk about Brooks. You know, one of the things I noticed in the book is how how hard it was for you to tell him what happened to his father, and that he didn't really fully understand what's happening. And through his eyes, you know, Scott was just gone for a little while, and hopefully, he was going to be coming back sometime soon. And there's a quote in the book that I thought really captured um, how complicated this must have been for you. I'm still so torn about what Brooks knows and what's too much or not enough to tell him. He's no dummy. Even at not quite two, he knows something's up. But I don't know what to say that's not going to be about my grief. That's not going to put it all on him and make it worse. Um, what I, the, the, the interesting thing about this book is it's, it's incredibly sad, but it's also really funny. And it's really a wonderful love letter to Scott and the, the power of family. I mean, t- talk to me a little bit about that because you really, really open yourself up so, so honestly in this book. I, I just kind of knew that I needed to write about it. And I made this decision that if I did it, I was going to have to tell it all. I yep. mean, not like in a, you know, confessional, like warts and, you know, bodily fluids kind of way, you know, but I, I knew that if there were, was, a if I was writing it, I just started to write. And I knew if there were emotions that were coming that felt integral. Yeah. I had to write about them and I couldn't. And then I would let my editor or someone tell me it was too much. I would let someone else say, "Eh." but I felt like there was, if I was going to open this wound a little bit, I owed it to myself to open it all the way. I think that's what I was most impressed and certainly surprised by in the book, your ability to be fully transparent. There were things about you that I learned for the first time. Not everyone would make that choice, Leslie. It's difficult to expose yourself like that, warts and all. Well, what's so funny is I'm the kind of person that I'm so, I'm kind of over the top of kind of, when you knew me, 
I kind of was coming into that, but I also was finally like any 18, 19 year old person um, who had too much in their brain, very self-aware. So I think there were times I probably thought that I was holding back that I wasn't. There were times where I thought I was really, really out there and I wasn't, I you get it wrong when you're young. Yeah. But I've always been this person and I kind of flail outward, but I kind of make it entertaining. Okay. Um, and so that's kind of who, who I am. And I just, I knew that 95% of the people who were going to read this book were people who weren't going to know me, but the 5% that were, were going to go, they would know if it wasn't authentic. And also yep. they're, they're nosy. So they would tell people they'd be in their, uh, Goodreads reviews. This isn't her at all. <laughs> She's not like this at all. I felt like I was an insider when I read your book that I was on some sort of special fast track because I've known you for 30 years, as we discussed earlier, which means I know about your sense of humor, your wit, and your sarcasm. And I've known that for most of my adult life. And there's one more quote from the book that I want to read because I think you know the thing that I was, I was really impressed by in this book was how you balanced the sense of humor and, and Leslie, as well as you know, the pain of going through such such a difficult thing, and I think this quote really captures um, Leslie very well. The Jews have shiva plates and seven days of mourning, whereas we have two days of intensely focused pain and chicken. My mom and I refer to it as the chicken of bereavement, where the healing power of poultry and heavily salted pig accented greens salve the wounds of grief. Um, really like, that's really funny to me. Like, I, I just love the fact that you can, you can talk about the differences of your two religions in a way that's very comical yet at the same time, it's very poignant. Thank you. Once again, it's just, and I know I'm going to sound like Carrie Bradshaw here, hopefully a better, not so obnoxious, better friend, Carrie Bradshaw, but that I process so much of my words, expecting them to come out. Like the, when I stopped reviewing movies um, regularly, it was weird for me because I would start writing reviews in my head and go, Oh, I don't have to do that. No one cares. It's just me in my head. So yeah. um, in the same vein, I always have to make sure that what I'm feeling is authentic and not performative. Um, sure. and, and then I just realized years ago, that's just who I am. So yeah. I, that's just what I do. And if anyone can use it, if it's like a book that's on the today show, or if it's just me like spitballing on the bus or in the elevator or whatever it is, what it is. But um, I just, I process things funny and sometimes it's a defense mechanism, but mostly it's just what I do. And I just, I don't know anyone. And I know that you unfortunately have been to funerals and yep. you know what that is. And I don't know anyone who's ever been to a funeral where something effed up didn't happen. That was funny whether it was in an ironic way or whether it was just in a stupid way or just like someone that your mom or dad or brother or sister didn't like showed up and you're like, the hell are they here for? And everybody exactly. laughs and goes, why is Anne so-and-so here? We hate her. Um, and every funeral I've ever been to, there's been that kind of thing where someone weird showed up or like um, somebody like got drunk and said something wrong or there was a fight or whatever. Um and I will say you're 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 Irish and I'm black, so we have the traditions of um, mourning yeah. spectacle. <laughs> so sure, sure, those stories happen, and it's funny. And I think that we've created, you know, they were t the, think of two cultures that like know about like 
pain and suffering and stuff, you know? So what are you going to do? You're going to make your funerals like poignant. You drink a lot and you eat a lot of chicken and your blood pressure goes up and you're funny. I mean, I felt like I learned so much more about both of those cultures just by reading your book, just because, I mean, you, you kind of know it based on what you see in pop culture and movies and shows and things like that. But to hear it firsthand from somebody that, that you know, that's not easy to, to, to marry yourself, you know, into a, a white Jewish family and you're, you know, an African-American woman, that's, that, that's not very normal. You know, it's not very common. And, uh, and I thought you did a, a really superb job just kind of talking about that integration and, and that lifestyle. So let's talk about getting published. You know, we live in this world of social media where everybody has a platform. Everybody has an opportunity to express themselves. Self-publishing has really taken off over the last 15, 20 years. Um, you know, these book you know, publishers really have, you know, tons of manuscripts to review. And, you know, they're not going to just put anything out. So they really need to see something fresh and distinct to uh, to roll the dice on on an author, particularly a new author. And uh, so talk to us about that process, how everything fell into place. I know James Patterson, the author, also played a role in that. Um, would love to hear more about what went down. What I'll say this, and for those of you, who, once again, who were just meeting me, I mean, it's like we've known each other so long that literally you were along through so much of this process, just like me emailing you and go, what do you think of this? Yep. What do you think of that? Here's a thing is that, you know, and you were just great about it, but, um, yeah, you always sent me, you sent me like the book, the, the, uh, sample book covers, yeah. all that sort of stuff. I was completely geeked out by that. So thank you for including me, even in a very, very small capacity. I love being a part of that. Oh, it was great. And, and Cause you knew what to look for. You knew like, does this look, and you gave me, and you gave me great advice, but, um, basically the process was, it's really hard. And some people want to self publish and I'll say, I never wanted to self publish because I wanted to make some money. And yeah. I wanted to, I had the luxury of having a platform. Now, most people who write memoirs, many of them are already celebrities. They're Hillary Clinton, they're Michelle Obama, they're whoever. So people are going to write anything I write because they already know them. Of course. When you write something like this, it's the presignation thing where I was like in my 20s when presignation came out and I thought, I, I would love to write a memoir, but I hope nothing messed up enough to me ever happens that I need to write a memoir. And it did. So I went, oh, okay, great. Lucky you. I know, look at me. So, because otherwise, no one wants to hear about being you. They want to hear about something bad that happened to you or being on Star Search or whatever it was. I didn't do that. I auditioned for The Voice several times. It can get on. So it's like, widowhood, that's a thing. I'm joking. Anyway, um, but am I? Um, I, <laughs> you know, so I decided I wanted to write this book. And I went the route that a lot of people do where I, you start looking for an agent. I went the traditional route where I'd met an agent at a film, a book festival who stuck with me for a while. She never signed me. And then she kind of ghosted on me and she admitted later that she didn't, she couldn't from where I was, she couldn't figure out where I was going with it. So she just kind of ghosted. So it was lovely to tell her I'd found an agent that was getting published by a little Brown which was fun. And she was great about it. She's like, I probably should have stuck with you. You're like, yeah, you should have. Anyway. I bet that felt good. I know. And she was really good. Once again, it, no hard feelings. It just, yeah. well, a yeah. couple, but not many. Um, well, it's just because it was really important to me. And I understood, we understand people are, because I'm in this business of words and I know many people who are writers and have agents and stuff. I understand that it's not the chances that you're going to, leave your manuscript accidentally on someone's doorstep and then find it and discover you are very, very slim, particularly now where some people either go the self-published route or they're people yep. who are just looking for Kardashians and winners of the road of road rules or whatever. 
And so I had a, a little platform. So I started looking for agents and I found an agent, uh, Rick Pascacello, who was for years the director of marketing at Penguin and left yeah. when they got bought, bought by Random House, was became an agent with a former business partner of his. And I sent him my book and he called me back like three hours later because even though he he's our age, but he was a new agent and they said new agents will take a chance on things. So he got it because he was a parent and because he was married and he was like, I've never been widowed, but this makes sense to me. Unlike some of the younger kids who read the stuff as agents and go, what is this about? They couldn't wrap their brain around funny. They're like widow, Ugh, whatever, middle-aged. No, what, you know, um, yeah. not a Kardashian. No. So um, he stuck with me and we, it took us a year and then I was interviewing James Patterson, who I had met several times before. He'd always been lovely to me at a a PBS station that was premiering a kid show he was producing about reading, which is his passion. And I called the people and I said, can I talk to him? They're like, oh, yeah, he loves you. Come in. And I said, I'm writing a book. And immediately he said, do you want me to read it? And That's went, amazing. What? And he actually took my stuff. We, we pitched someone else at, at Hachette. I can't remember which other um, property we had, but he said, you want me to take it to little Brown? And he did. And um, he said, let me tell you though. He goes, it's not just, he goes, if, if it sucked, they would have told me. It's like, thank you. Which is hilarious. I remember I kept asking you when the book was coming out. And I think the first time I asked you that question, you said something like, Oh, it'll be out in about a year, year and a half. And I was like, geez, that's so far. But then all of a sudden, you know, I asked you again and you're like, well, it's coming out in a couple of months and it just, it crept up on us. And at that point, I remember you and I were talking a lot or we were, we were texting a lot and you were filling me in. I was living vicariously through you and your updates. And uh, I was so excited for you. You gave me an early copy of the book, which I reviewed right away and shared my thoughts with you. And, and, you know, you were ready to go, you know, you had a publicity tour set up, you had book parties and you were supposed to be on the Today Show. And then the pandemic hits. And I was so devastated for you. I could not believe the timing. I mean, it's like so typical based on what you've gone through. You know, the whole story behind this book, everything that you've gone through with Scott and Brooks and to write this book, to get the book picked up, to get it published, and then the pandemic. So, you know, I can only imagine how uh, how that must have felt. But tell us, you know, how you reacted to that. Tell me about the devastation of your hopes and dreams, Alex. Um, so... Yeah. Unbelievable. So what's funny is that like everybody, we started to hear about this thing and we thought, oh, that's, that's in China. Okay. That's somewhere else. That's not because who thinks of a pandemic? No one expects a Spanish inquisition. No one expects a, a pandemic. So it got to the point where March 2nd, which was my, the launch in Palm Beach with James Patterson, there were already rumblings. And I remember I had a cold and I coughed on stage and I went, I don't have it. And I went, okay, great. And my doctor goes, you don't have it. And who knows? There were no tests at that point. They just assumed you didn't. Of course. But, of course. But um, that was March 2nd. That was a Monday. And I took a couple weeks off because I was starting a book tour. And so the next week I had two events in um, one at the library downtown and it was a reception of their donors 
and they canceled the reception because most of the donors are in their seventies and they got really spooked. And yeah. then my book came out, it was the day my book came out the 10th. I was supposed to have been in New York for talks at Google. And that was a big secret because you're not supposed to tell anyone until it comes out. And I was actually going to be in New York, wake up the morning that my book came out and yeah. have that experience of walking to a bookstore in New York and picking up my book, flying home. And then I had an event the next day at the library. So they canceled the reception, but they still had the book reading and people came, which was great. And then that Thursday I had a reading at a bookstore in Delray and the people, they were starting to get nervous, but people came and then I was supposed to be at books and books in Miami the next Monday. And they called me that Thursday and went, we don't think it's going to happen. And then everything just one by one, I was supposed to have done camp widow, which is a big widows conference in Tampa the next weekend canceled. I had two readings, one in Tampa, one in Orlando canceled. Yeah. I had, um, or, uh, new Orleans in April canceled the today show in April canceled the postponed. I did that later online. Yeah, you did do it. I remember that happened just much, much later, right? Much, much later. I had, um, I was supposed to speak at a bookstore, greedy reads, which is near me in Fells point now in, uh, in Baltimore, canceled. Edgar Allan Poe House, canceled. BookCon in New York, canceled. You know, you never showed your frustration with that to me, but I'm sure privately you probably lost your shit one or two times. I know I would have. I think that I had to give myself, because the book's about grieving, right? So I had to give myself a chance to grieve this thing I thought was going to happen. And I thought it was going to happen the way I thought it was going to happen. The weird thing is... I think I probably got it in front of more bodies this way than I would have just because rather than go to a bookstore and take a chance that 20 people would show up, I would do an online thing where hundred people were there. A lot more scale behind something like that. Yep. Yeah. And I did all kinds of podcasts. Once again, all the book podcasts and stuff were desperate for people. So I did, there were like, a month or so where I literally every day had a podcast or a zoom or a zoom and a podcast or something. And, you know, I love hotels. Like my favorite thing is travel. And I had all these plans to do it that way. And to go drink interesting things and to go like see interesting stuff and get paid for it. I had all these plans and I didn't get to do most of that. But what I did get to do was what I think the most important part of the book was, which is to reach people who were going through what I had gone through. And to get that in their hands and to have people who never would have, like for instance, at BookCon, I was supposed to be on a stage with a couple other people, but it's big, huge. And they're mostly at that point looking for like the books about handmaids and dragons and stuff. So if like 20 people had stopped by and stood through my whole thing, 30 people had been great. I had a hundred people yeah. online and yeah. money would be great. It would have sold better that way. But, um, let me fill in the listeners on what's going on. So there's such great news here. Hollywood has come calling and they have shown extensive interest in this book. Um, producers are lined up outside Leslie's house, dying to option it and to make this into a TV series, which is unbelievable. And I mean, I can't even, I can't even wrap my head around that. And uh, to think about what you've gone through in terms of you know losing Scott, having the courage to write your story, which is not easy to do, to open, open up your heart, to bear your soul... To get it picked up by a by a publisher, to have it get put out, to have a pandemic ruin the launch, and now to have Hollywood potentially make it this into a into a TV series, I mean, I can't think of a better outcome 
and I know that you would trade it all in for one more day with Scott, but to have this be, you know, a possibility, it must be amazing. So tell us about that. Yeah. So here's here's what I can say about it, because you know, it's it's whatever till it's not. But um my agents have a co-agent and I was taking, I was calling you going, I'm taking meetings. It sounds weird. I'm taking meetings. So like, just shut up and do it. It's like, and I was, I was so super jealous. And <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? Not jealous, but like, I was so excited for you. That was so amazing. It was and one, literally I'm working out of my messy bedroom in, in West Palm beach. Um, going literally talking to really impressive people on the phone. So I, I've signed to it with a company called Project X, um, who's really amazing people. And I'll just say we have some options. I've been like talking to writers and interviewing people. And I, I'm always on the phone going, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to mess this up because there are all these professionals on the phone. I'm like, I'm like Chris Farley. Remember the time you were in the Beatles? I mean, I feel really stupid sometimes. I yeah. this is new for me. But I will say this. And you and I have had this discussion about trying new things in your not youngness. And your unyouth, I will say that um, that sometimes it just happens, and I'm in this world that I know nothing about, and I'm just making it up as I go along. And once I get out of my own head, I mean, I think that that was the thing you asked the question earlier about the launch. Is that yes, it felt incredibly personal, and then you go, "Don't be a dick." This happened to everybody. There yeah. were so many writers, and I'm actually in a group of writers that we've called ourselves Lockdown Lit, where we went on each other's podcasts and recommended each other, and we're going to each other's book clubs and doing stuff. Um, there's a bookstore in LA, I mean, in San Francisco, that has a whole section of us um, because you know we lost a lot, and the you know the amount of time that goes into writing a book, or as you know, writing a a, a treatment and writing a, a screen a screenplay and doing a pilot and all that stuff. It's incredibly time consuming and emotionally arduous and inexp- emotionally expensive. And to have that like get sucked away because your book didn't come out three months earlier. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but you know, like I said, I think that there's a, a why to it. And I think that people, that have found it now really needed it. They re- everyone is grieving. The world is grieving this world before. And I think that whoever you are, people that found the book found it and needed it in a different capacity than they would have before then. And that's my pleasure. That's my pleasure to and in my honor. So this whole podcast has been a shameless plug for your book, and I have no problem with that. So let's do it one more time. Black Widow is the book. It's out now. Uh, the paperback Leslie is coming out in February, and do you know when that is? I do not remember, but it's if you look on Amazon, or most importantly, I would like you to go to your very dedicated and incredibly struggling local booksellers. Yep, and order it. If they don't have it on their shelves, they will get it for you. Um, paperback comes out. It's also on audio. I did it myself, um, which was really long but really fun. And painful, but really good. And it's um, on Kindle. So um, I encourage you, however you find the story, to I hope you find it. Um, and, I, and I hope that it, it finds you in, in a place where you need it and it's helpful. Well, as someone who has struggled with loss, it definitely spoke to me. And I have friends who feel the same. It's a terrific read. 
and a wonderful accomplishment. Leslie, I'm super excited to see how the story ends. I'm rooting for you, and I hope the book gets made into a TV series. And if it does, we'll have you back on so you can dish on that crazy process. So thank you so much for coming on the show and telling your story. I don't know how many listeners I'll have, probably eight, but they will be eight qualified listeners. And that counts. I'll tell people about it too. There you go. So thanks so much for your time and uh, we'll let you go. Thanks, hon. Thanks, Leslie. Take care. Bye.